0: Because it was not my planning, okay? So I don't know if this is by coincidence or by divine appointment that this weekend happens to be Passover because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about this afternoon. Uh, As you can look at our title here, The Spring Feast in the Sanctuary, it's important to our study of the sanctuary. We're in the middle of a series on the sanctuary, and uh, you do not want to miss... Uh, what is coming in the next few weeks, I promise. It's going to be beautiful, powerful uh, presentations that we as a people need to be reminded of, especially in the light of what is taking place uh, today. Before we get into tonight's study, I would like to read a statement that uh, I read last night in our family devotion. And I, I think it is very appropriate in light of what is taking place in our world today. In case you haven't realized it, my friends, our world is crazy. The nations are angry. Uh, Everything is set in place for the final movements to begin. And, And I'm telling you, if the Lord does not intervene soon... Mankind will destroy itself. So as we look at the news, I invite us to look at the news with one eye and Bible prophecy with the other eye. And you'll see that both are lining up just perfectly. But in light of what is taking place both in the world and in the Christian world, I read from uh, the devotion by Sister White, entitled Maranatha, uh, April 12th, page 110. And I read, Christ calls upon us to enter the narrow pathway where every step means a denial of self. He calls upon us to stand upon the platform of eternal truth and contend, yes, contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. As we near the time when principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places will be fully brought into warfare against the truth, when saints' deceptive power Will be so great that if it were possible, he would deceive the very elect. Our discernment must be sharpened by divine enlightenment that we may not be ignorant of Satan's devices. That's a pretty long sentence, but read that again. As we near the time when principalities, and powers and spiritual wickednesses in high places will be fully brought into warfare against the truth. And I believe we're at the time, my friends. When Satan's of power will be so great, if it were possible, he would deceive the very elect. Our discernment must be sharpened by divine enlightenment, that we may not be ignorant of Satan's devices. And if ever there was a time when we as God's people need discernment, my friends, that time is now. By giving us the cooperation of the holy angels, God has made it possible for our work to be a glorious success. Praise God for that. But success will seldom result from scattered effort. The united influence of all the members of the church is required. How many members? All. All. The church today needs men who, like Enoch, walk with God, revealing Christ to the world. Church members need to reach a higher standard. Heavenly messengers are waiting to communicate with those who have sunk self out of sight, whose lives are a fulfilling of the words, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Of such men and women must the church be composed before her light can shine forth in the world in clear, distinct rays. Our views of the Son of Righteousness are clouded by self-seeking. Christ is crucified afresh by many who through self-indulgence allow Satan to gain control over them. It is God's purpose that all shall be tested and tried, that he may see whether they are loyal or disloyal to the laws that govern the kingdom of heaven. To the last, God permits Satan to reveal himself a liar, an accuser, and a murderer. Thus, the final triumph of his people is made more marked more glorious, more full, and more complete. My friends, I believe that we're living in a time when Satan's deceptions are greater than ever before. And it will get worse. And that is why we, my friends, as God's people, need to have our discernment sharpened by the Word of God. It is only by the Word of God in these last days that we will detect error, discern error, avoid error, and above all, know what truth is. We live in some perilous times, my friends. Perilous times. And this series that we're doing in the sanctuary here is to enable us to discern these errors because this most precious truth that the Lord has given to us, which is clearly taught in the Word and in the Spirit of Prophecy, is being attacked by both within and without. So that being said, my friends, I invite us this evening to take our time as we go through this series and allow the Lord to remind us of these wonderful truths that we as a people have. So that being said, let's a word of prayer and we'll dive right into it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much that a group, of your, a group of your people is gathered here this evening as the sun is, unfortunately, quickly beginning to set and we face a new week. Father, what better place to end your Sabbath day than here in your presence, studying your word, worshiping you. And Father, if we truly understood just how short amount of time we had left, if we truly understood, Father, just where we are in your prophetic clock, Father, we want to be meeting like this every day, studying, edifying, fortifying our minds, preparing, Lord, for the final conflict that is soon to come upon this world. So, Father, we pray this evening that as we open your word, Lord, that you will send your Holy Spirit to be here present. May he be the one that is leading and guiding our study tonight. May truth shine so clearly, Father in heaven, that we can see Jesus as Redeemer, as Savior, and as soon-coming King. Please, Lord, empower us to do your will. Be with this church, Father which we believe you have called for a holy purpose, a high calling at this time in earth's history. May we fulfill that purpose. But Lord, please, be with us now as you open your word. Be with my words, my thoughts. We humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I would like for us to briefly review as to why we should be studying the sanctuary. The earthly sanctuary, now notice, the earthly sanctuary is important because it is God's object lesson to illustrate redemption in the heavenly sanctuary. It is important because the heavenly sanctuary is the great original. And this is where the work of redemption is actually going on in progress right now. It is there where Jesus is now making his final appeal before the Father on our behalf. And as we are living in the closing moments of this earth's history, more than ever before should we seriously study this foundation of our faith. And since the plan of salvation is the main theme of the Bible, an understanding of both the earthly and the heavenly sanctuary is crucial to a proper understanding of the Bible and of the plan of salvation. It is a clear picture, my friends, of the heavenly sanctuary that will enable us to follow Jesus where he is now ministering for the salvation of man. And this will strengthen our faith in the closing work of the gospel. And as we said a moment ago, it will help us detect error, avoid error, and it will also be an anchor to the soul. Without a proper understanding of what is taking place in the heavenly sanctuary right now, we will not be able to do our part in cooperation with Christ. And this is especially important, my friends, as the judgment is going on even now. The judgment that is to decide our eternal destiny. Now, we also need to remember that the earthly sanctuary was a figure of the heavenly Moses was told to make the sanctuary in the wilderness according to the pattern that he was shown. It was to be an exact copy. There was to be no deviation of the pattern because every detail represented some phase of the work of Christ for our salvation. So it is very important that we gain a clear understanding not only of the pattern but also its relation to the heavenly sanctuary. So, this evening, before we get into the main point, which I'm anxious to do so, I, 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 I want to make it real simple. Real simple. As in the earthly sanctuary, there was two distinct places. The holy and the most holy. So the antitype. And I hope we're familiar with those terms type and anti-type. It's quite simple, okay? The word type basically means symbol, that which represents the illustration. The antitype is the real thing, the actual thing. So the lamb, the, the, the four-legged animal that was sacrificed is type. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is anti-type the earthly sanctuary that Moses built and later Solomon built and then Zerubbabel rebuilt, that is type. The sanctuary in heaven that the Lord built and not man, that is anti-type, the real thing. If that's clear, please say amen. Amen. So whenever you hear the phrase type meant anti-type, that means that the type, the symbol, has fulfilled its purpose and now the real thing has taken over. Are you following me, amen? amen? So, an antitype, each division or each phase of the work of Christ has its distinctive place in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, the last time we met, I made the statement that even though the cross is eternally important, and we will never, ever, ever minimize the importance of the cross. I mean, it's a center because that is what actually got the entire process of the century started. But the work of Christ did not finish at the cross. That's where it began. The cross made the administration of the century possible. But, the overwhelming majority of the Christian world, the last place they see Jesus is at the cross. And they have no understanding of the work that Jesus is doing for us now on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. Because we're to follow Jesus from the cross to his resurrection to his high priestly ministry and heavenly sanctuary on our behalf. Amen? Amen? But not only that, the overwhelming majority of the Christian world believes that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he went directly into the most holy place. And they believe so based on one verse. Let's go with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And let's go to verse 19. Hebrews 6, verse 19. Now, don't worry. This is not going to be an apologetics tonight. Okay, I'm just giving a few opening remarks before we get into our main study this evening. But Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, the Bible says, are we there, Amen? amen? The Bible says, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within what? Within the veil, where the forerunner is first entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So they say, aha, see, where did Christ go? He went within the veil. What's that talking about? The most holy place. Well, now wait a minute. To reach that conclusion, we must ignore the fact that there were two apartments in the heavenly sanctuary with two veils. The veil at the entrance of the most holy place was called the second veil. Now, if there is a second veil, that means there must be a what? A first veil. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verse 3. Hebrews 9, verse 3 the Bible says, and after the what veil? The second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Not only that, to believe that Christ went directly into the most holy place, we must forget that the high priest entered within this second veil once a year at the end of the yearly ministry, not at the beginning. Verse 1, Hebrews 9. Then verily the first, how about the first, uh, 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 the, 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 the earthly sanctuary, the first also had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. But look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered himself and for the errors of the people. So, you had two apartments, two rooms, two places, with two veils. The first veil led to the holy place. And that veil was passed through every day by the priests. But the second veil that went to the most holy place, that veil was passed through only once a year and only by the high priest. That's clear please say amen. amen. It's clear. Now again not going to take too much time on this, because I don't want to bore you with too many technicalities. But I will deal with some briefly right here, just briefly. Now, just follow me, saints. Just follow me now. Okay? I want us to examine quickly some texts that have caused confusion. We're in Hebrews 9, and let's go to verse 11. Hebrews 9, verse 11. These are texts that have caused confusion because they, they, some, they, they want to, people wanted to say that Christ went directly into the most holy place when that is simply not the case. To believe that, you've got to do it with the entire sanctuary system. But verse 11 says, but Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into what my friends read it, holy the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, if any of you have an NIV, it has a gross mistranslation, it says their most holy place. But, here, it plainly tells us that Christ entered the holy place at his ascension. Now, how do we know? The Greek word here literally reads holy places, plural. The Greek literally reads holy places. And it is the same word that is used in Hebrews 9, verse 8. Let's read verse 8. It says, The Holy Ghost... The signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. Again, the Greek literally reads, literally reads holy places. And it's the same word that is used in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 2, where the Bible says, A minister of the t- sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. The word sanctuary there literally reads holy places. It does not refer either to the holy or most holy. It refers to the sanctuary itself. When talking about the most holy, we find a totally different Greek word. And that is found in Hebrews 9, verse 3. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 3. It says, And after the second veil... The tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. That's the most holy. And there's a totally different Greek word that is used. Not only that, we have the example of the earthly sanctuary. In the earthly sanctuary, the high priest during the year ministered in the holy place, and not until the close of the year did he enter into the most holy place. And that makes it quite clear that Christ, the antitype of the earthly priest, began his ministry as high priest in the first apartment of the sanctuary, not the second. Now, if you follow me so far, please say amen. amen. This is a Sabbath afternoon study, okay? Now, I'm not going to bore you with these too many technicalities, but these are important. We'll probably deal with some of these in more depth later on. Now, others believe that there is no sanctuary in heaven at all. Well, that's simply impossible. The sanctuary is indispensable to the work of redemption as typified in the earthly sanctuary. Now, type reached its antitype when at the death of Jesus, the veil of the temple was torn. Remember that story? This was heaven's announcement that the work of the earthly sanctuary was forever ended and that the service of the heavenly sanctuary was about to begin. Sorry. Let me do this right. My, my fault. My fault. Sorry. Father in heaven, Lord, please help us to refocus on your word. Take control, Father God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The work of Jesus as high priest in the heavenly sanctuary did not begin until his sacrificial work on earth was done. And when he cried out on the cross, it is finished. All the sacrifices of the court met their antitype. And therefore, no more death of animals would ever be required again. It was the end of all shedding of blood for sin. And that's why we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, the Bible says, Hebrews 9, verse 12, the Bible says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And so never again was the glory of God to be manifested in the earthly sanctuary. Never again was the earthly sanctuary to be God's dwelling place on earth. The service of the heavenly sanctuary was about to begin. This is why we read again Hebrews 9, verse 8. Let's read it more carefully this time. Hebrews 9, verse 8, the Bible says, The Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while the first tabernacle was yet standing. So long as the earthly sanctuary was fulfilling the purpose of God, there was no need of the antitype. The type met its antitype and passed away at the death of Christ, and then the veil was torn. Then the way into the holiest of all was made manifest. In other words, while the earthly sanctuary was in operation according to God's plan, the way into the heavenly was not yet revealed. So the sanctuary on earth gave way to the one in heaven. The earthly priesthood gave way to the heavenly priesthood of Jesus and the ministration was removed from the earthly to the heavenly sanctuary. If you're following, please say amen. Amen. Give me a lot here. In other words, the Lamb, a male of the first year, which the priest offered morning and evening as a consecration of Israel to God, Represented Christ at the beginning of his earthly life. He entered the court of the earth to become sacrifice, which God gave for the world. The ram of consecration, which was not a, a male of the first year, but the ram of consecration, which was a mature sheep, male sheep, which Moses offered when the earthly sanctuary was set up, symbolized Christ as a sacrifice at the end of his earthly life. And as an earthly sanctuary could not begin to operate until this sacrifice had been offered and until both the sanctuary and the priest had been anointed, so the service in the heavenly sanctuary Could not begin until Christ, the true sacrifice, had been offered on Calvary and until at his ascension, he had been anointed as high, high priest and the heavenly sanctuary likewise was anointed. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. Because the heavenly sanctuary could not begin to function until Christ was anointed and so the sanctuary itself was anointed. Now, what I would like for us to do now is to show you this transition, but from a different angle, one that perhaps is not done very often. You see, usually when we talk about the sanctuary, we go straight from the court to the holy place. We can talk about the table of showbread, lampstand, uh, altar of incense, and that, my friends, is a very important and blessed study. I think we already talked about that already. It is a wonderful, beautiful study that many truths are revealed. But I would like for us to take our time, and this is going to take us two or three Sabbaths, to begin a little before that and show you the transition from the earthly to the heavenly sanctuary to show you Jesus going from sacrifice to priest. And this series will end with Jesus becoming king. And I'm going to do this by trying to kill many birds with one stone. I would like for us to begin by taking a look at the spring feasts of Israel. From Passover to Pentecost. Because it was these feasts that were types that illustrated the transition of Christ going from sacrifice, ending the earthly priesthood, ending the earthly sanctuary, and Jesus ascending and beginning his heavenly priesthood in the heavenly sanctuary. So with that in mind, my friends, I invite us to go to Exodus chapter 12 and take a look at the Passover. And like I said, it is just by coincidence that we're the Passover weekend. So, uh, very, very appropriate. Exodus 12, and we're not going to read the whole chapter for sake of time, but I would like for us to read up until verse 12. So let's go to Exodus 12, my friends, beginning in verse 1, and let's read the Lord instituting the Passover. Are we there, amen? The Bible says... And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, don't think January. Okay? This was the beginning of the Hebrew religious calendar. It's called the month of Nisan or the month of Abib. Verse 3. Speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. So on which day of the month, my friends, were they to pick a lamb? On which day? The tenth day. Don't miss this. Very important. Verse 4. And the household is too little for the lamb. Let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it unto the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly Of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. So the lamb that was to be sacrificed was selected on the tenth day. And it was held unto the fourteenth day when the lamb, it says right here, when all the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Verse 7. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts of the upper door and the posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in the night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat it not raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs and with his pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain unto the morning, and that which remains of it unto the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So we find that the Passover, and if you read carefully, the Feast of Unleavened Bread are connected. Many even put them together as one. Now, while we can separate them, We must never forget that they are connected. The first three feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and the Wave Sheaf Offering, or First Fruits, however you want to call it. And then, 50 days later, Pentecost. Now, there are several things we must remember about this. Here they are. There was to be a lamb for every household. This lamb must be without blemish. The lamb must be killed in the evening. The blood must be sprinkled upon the side posts and upper doorposts of the house in which the lamb must be eaten. The lamb must be eaten that night, and if any remains to the morning, it must be burned. If we keep on reading the same chapter, not a single bone of the lamb must be, must be broken and it must be eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now, let us briefly set the stage. The year is roughly 1450 B.C., give or take. The Hebrews, due to their condition of slavery, were unable to fully practice their faith. But as the time approached for their deliverance, Moses requested of Pharaoh that he grant them permission to offer a national sacrifice to the Lord in the in the wilderness. This was refused. The Lord then instructed Moses to demand that the king free the nation or face the consequences. This was also ignored. And even the nine previous plagues failed to convince Pharaoh of the mighty power of God. But now, something great, something truly great was about to take place. That night, before the tenth and final plague, the Lord commanded Israel to begin the reckoning of the Hebrew calendar from the month of Nisan or Abib in which the Passover fell. This is the month. Don't think April. Okay? Month of Abib or Nisan. The king of Egypt in his atheistic view of God was bent on keeping Israel enslaved. But the Hebrews were ready to take their freedom as soon as God would give it. And soon, within hours, the Passover would become the nation's Independence Day. It would be there 4th of July. So what happened? On the 10th day of the first month of Nisan, or Abib, a lamb was selected. And it would be made ready for sacrifice on the 14th day of Nisan or Abib. Now by this, the Lord predicted the moment of Christ's selection as the Passover lamb by the nation of Israel. How so? In the last year of Christ's earthly life, the 14th of Nisan, fell on a Friday. On the previous Sabbath, six days before the Passover, we find Jesus enjoying a meal in the house of Simon. The next day, Sunday, which would have been the ninth of Nisan, we find Jesus riding triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey. Where later on he wept bitterly for Jerusalem. Now, why? Notice these statements by Ellen White. But the Jews had rejected their Savior. They were about to crucify their King. And when the sun should set that night, I'm talking about the night when Christ entered Jerusalem, that Sunday, when the sun should set that night, the doom. Of Jerusalem would be forever sealed. Desire of Vedas, When the fast westering sun should pass from the sight in the heavens, Jerusalem's day of grace would be ended. How did it happen? Now follow me, my friends. My friends. Sunday, the 9th of Nisan, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. But when the sun set, biblically speaking, what day was it? It was the next day, which means it's now the what? The 10th of Nisan. That night, the illegally summoned Sanhedrin voted to condemn Jesus, Heaven's Lamb, to death. And by this decision, settled their own fate. So Jesus was appointed to die at the very moment when thousands of Passover lambs were being selected by the people precisely on the same day that God instructed centuries earlier. Are you following me? The lamb was selected on the tenth day but sacrifice on the 14th. Jesus, that night, the 10th of Nisan, was selected by the illegally summoned Sanhedrin for death. He was selected. During the next four days, the name of Jesus was on everyone's lips. The evil rulers plotted with Judas to bring Jesus to death. Now, of course... Satan would not want the type to meet the anti-type. And so Satan tried to prevent Jesus from dying on the actual Passover. How do we know? Go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and let's go to verse 4. Matthew 26, verse 4. Matthew 26, verse 4, the Bible says. Are we there, amen? Matthew 26, verse 4, the Bible says... Well, let's go to verse 3. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people into the palace of the high priest who called, was called Caiaphas and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtly and kill him. Look at verse 5. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. They wanted to kill Jesus, but not on the Passover. Now, who do you think was inspired them to do that? But my friends, God's prophecies know no failure. And Satan could not stop it from being fulfilled. So on the morning of the 10th of Nisan, that that would be Monday morning, Jesus cursed the fruitless fig tree. And by this he signaled that his chosen nation, had made the decision to reject him. And so the withered fig tree showed what the Jewish people would be when the grace of God would be removed from them. Now according to the Passover, the Lamb, selected on the 10th day, it would be placed on exhibition until the 14th day when it was to be killed. And when that day arrived, my friends, the most powerful representatives of the Hebrew nation, the priests, the rulers, the scribes, the lawyers, joined the common people along with Herod and Pilate and the soldiers, all came together for the crucifying of Jesus. This was done on the 14th day of Nisan. Type met anti-type. As Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. It is simply amazing. amazing. When when, you look at all this, but now watch this. In order for Jesus to be our Passover, He, like the Lamb, had to be without what Blemish. blemish. He had to be without sin. And my friends, was this fulfilled in the life of Jesus? Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was heaven's spotless lamb. But not only that, the lamb had to be killed in the evening. You see, Jesus died at the very hour that the lamb was to be offered between the evenings, that is about 3 p.m. The Bible says he was crucified beginning at the 6th hour, and at the ninth hour he died, which is 3 p.m., the exact time they were sacrificing the Passover lamb. But we now turn to the sprinkling of the blood. You see, my friends, the Passover, as important as the killing of the lamb was, it didn't stop there. That just began the whole process. The blood had to be what? Sprinkled where? Up on the top. And my friends, if you're painting, and it was ever painted, and you paint up here, what's going to drip down? Paint. So you got blood here, blood here, blood here, and blood down there. What shape do you have? You got a cross. It's showing us how Christ was going to die. But soon, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles began preaching Jesus, Him crucified, and Him resurrected. They told the people everywhere that it was only through the blood of Jesus that they could be forgiven and saved. Because only, my friends, the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from all sin. Peter alludes to this fact, my friends, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's go there quickly. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. And let's go to verse 2. Well, let's go to verse 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Notice how Peter alludes to the sprinkling. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. The Bible says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and what, my friends, read it, Sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Peter to this. So so we see that the sprinkled blood refers to the sprinkling of the blood of the Son of God, which saves and purifies our hearts. Amen? Amen? Now please note, because this is where we differ from our Evangelical and Protestant friends. The slain lamb, the sacrificed lamb, in that sacrifice, provision was made for the saving of the firstborn on that last night in Egypt. But the death of the lamb in and of itself was not enough. I repeat, the death of the Lamb, as important as it was, that in and of itself was not enough to save the firstborn. The blood must be what? It must be applied to the doorpost. Without the application of the blood of the Lamb, the death of the Lamb is of no avail. And that, my friends, does not minimize in any way, shape, or form the death of the Lamb. There must be individual application of the sacrifice. The sprinkling of the blood was as important as the death of the Lamb. Yet this was not enough. The flesh must be eaten and it must be eaten under proper conditions. What were those conditions? Let's go back to Exodus 12. Exodus 12, and let's go to verse 11. Exodus 12, verse 11, at 717. Exodus 12, verse 11. The Bible says, Exodus 12, verse 11, the Bible says, And thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Even this was not enough. All leaven must be put away. Verse 19, the Bible says, seven days, well, before that, let's go to, yeah, verse 19. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eats that which is leavened, even the soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Now we'll deal with the leaven later. But you not only had to kill the lamb, you had to apply the blood. Not only must you apply the blood, you must eat the flesh under the right conditions. Not only that, you must have no leaven anywhere in the house. Whoever ate leaven was cut off. Quite serious. But the Passover is symbolic of the death of Christ. He is our Passover. On the cross he died for us and thereby provision was made for everyone to be saved, for everyone who abides by the conditions of life, that is. You see, my friends, as glorious as the death of Christ was, the fact that Jesus died 2,000 years ago, that fact in and of itself does not save me. I must do what? What? I must apply His blood on my behalf. Without that, the death of Christ is useless to me. The the because my mind is in Numbers twenty one. When when Israel sinned, the Lord sent serpents among them. God told Moses erect a what, a serpent of brass. But the mere fact that the serpent of brass was erected, would that save the people? What did they have to do? You had to look. Behold it. It's the same thing. So the cross, in and of itself, saves no one, it provides salvation. There must be an individual application of the blood. That's why we read in verse 22. Look at Exodus twelve twenty-two. The Bible says, And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lentil and the two side posts with the blood that is in the hyssop and none of you shall go out at the door of his house till evening. Verse 23 for the Lord will pass through this through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood upon the lintel and the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come unto your houses and smite you. To be not destroyed, what did the Lord have to see? The blood. If that blood is not applied the death of the Lamb, I'm going to save you. Again, the mere historical fact that Jesus died 2,000 years ago will not save. It is only as you and I apply his blood on our behalf by faith that the power comes. So again, the promise was, if they do this, then the Lord when he sees the blood, will pass over and death would not come to that house. The provisions here mentioned saved the firstborn. The death of the lamb provided the means of salvation. The application of the blood made efficacious the means provided. Both were necessary. Now, let's try to take this a little bit deeper as we have to wrap this up. This evening. It is one thing, it is one thing to be saved from death. It's another to have the means of sustaining life. This was provided in the eating of the flesh and of abstaining from the leaven. Turn quickly, keep your finger Exodus 12. Let's go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John 6, and let's go to verse 51. John 6, verse 51. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. The means of sustaining life was provided in the eating of the flesh and of the abstaining from the leaven. Now Israel was to roast the entire lamb. Each family was to gather together a sufficient number of people so that all of the flesh could be eaten. Nothing was to be carried out of the house, nothing left till morning, and if anything was, it was to be burned. This prefigured, my friends, nothing else but an entire assimilation of him whom the lamb represented by those for whom the blood was shed. It means the entire and full acceptance of God, the entire and full surrender of self, of will to God. But let's take it just a little bit deeper. We're closing. Just a little bit deeper. Nothing was allowed to remain overnight. Nothing. When Jesus was crucified, it was Friday, the day before the Sabbath. The Jews came to Pilate and asked that the body of Jesus might be taken down, that it might not remain over the Sabbath. So Pilate gave the orders, and the broken body of our Savior was taken down. It was not allowed to remain overnight. And so we have the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning the Lamb, that it should not be kept overnight. Every detail was fulfilled in Christ. The next one we all know. When the soldiers came to take the bodies down, to make sure they were dead, they broke the legs of the two criminals. That would hasten their death. And I know that sounds cruel, but those men had much to be thankful for in breaking the legs. Because it would take three or four days dying on a cross. Oh, that, that miserable way to go. Breaking their legs, you die of asphyxiation, you're dead in a matter of minutes. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Amen. No need to break his bones. And therefore the were fulfilled that not a bone of his will be broken. God. When Jesus died, I close with the following statement. Desire of Ages. When the loud cry, It is finished, came from the lips of Christ, the priests were fishing in the temple. It was the hour of the evening sacrifice, 3 p.m. The Lamb, representing Christ, had been brought to be slain. Clothed in His significant and beautiful dress, the priest stood with lifted knife as did Abraham, When he was about to slay his son. With intense interest, the people were looking on. But the earth trembles and quakes, for the Lord himself draws near. With a rending noise, the inner veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom by an unseen hand, throwing open to the gaze of the multitude a place once filled with the presence of God. In this place, the Shekinah had dwelt. Here, God had manifested his glory above the the mercy seat. No one but the high priest ever lifted the veil separating this apartment from the rest of the temple. He entered in once a year to make an atonement for the sins of the people. But lo, this veil is rent in twain. The most holy place of the earthly sanctuary is no longer sacred. All is terror and confusion. The priest is about to slay the victim, but the knife drops from his nervous hand, and the lamb escapes. Type has met anti-type in the death of God's Son. The great sacrifice has been made. The way into the holiest is laid open. A new and living way is prepared for all. No longer need sinful, sorrowing humanity await the coming of the high priest. Henceforth, the Savior was to officiate as a priest and advocate in the heaven of heavens. It was as if a living voice had spoken to the worshipers. There is now an end to all sacrifices and offerings for sin. The Son of God is come according to His word. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. By His own blood, He enters into once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Every detail was fulfilled. But my friends, this just got the process going. This was the beginning, not the end. I repeat, we as God's people though we never ever minimize the cross, though it is eternally important and we praise God for the cross, we follow Jesus from the cross to his burial, to his resurrection, to his ascension, doing his work on our behalf as our high priest in the, in the heavenly sanctuary. Amen. We don't stay here. We follow. Now, my friends... This is the Passover, the beginning. Amen. Can't wait to get to the rest. Because we have Passover, the 14th of Nisan, which was yesterday. The 15th of Nisan began the Feast of Unleavened Bread, lasted for seven days. But on the 16th of Nisan, you had the wave sheaf offering. 50 days later, Pentecost. Pentecost. Each one of these, my friends, represented a different aspect in the work of Jesus in the plan of salvation. And when we're done with those, those are the spring feasts. Then comes the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles. Every one representing one In the work of Christ for our salvation. And right now, my friends, since 1844, we've been in the Day of Atonement. We're going to cover those in detail. Don't miss these next few coming weeks, my friends. Again, we're going to take it, we're going to show the transition. Here, Jesus, He sacrificed Passover. But when His work as sacrifice is done, he now begins his work as what? But before he can do that, he must be anointed. The heavenly sanctuary must be anointed. And a lot in between. So my friends, please, don't want to miss. We resume in two weeks. Not next Sabbath, but the following Sabbath, this amazing study. Amen? All right, my friends. So, hope you took notes. We have a nice holy quiz next